Welcome to the fifth episode of Ask an Ex-Mormon Therapist. This is your host, Jenny Morrow, and eventually I'll stop saying what number episode we're on. Right now I'm just still really excited that I'm doing this project and it's still happening and still moving forward. So thanks to everyone who's shared feedback. If you are liking what you're hearing, go to iTunes and share a review. It helps people to find the podcast and it also helps me to know um, what's working for you. So um, thanks everyone for listening. In today's podcast, I will be referring to some information that I will link on the web page. So the web page is www.askanexmormontherapist.com. So feel free to go there if you want to get some of the information and follow along visually as you're listening to the podcast. If not, then just enjoy listening. So today's format is going to be a little bit different. Normally what I do is I take a question that someone has emailed through to me at the email exmormontherapist at gmail.com. So keep the letters coming. I do have a couple letters in the queue that I'm wanting to answer, but there's been a topic that's been coming up that I've wanted to discuss. So I've just decided to take the liberty today to open up this topic and discuss it without having gotten a specific letter about it. And it's kind of funny today as I sat down to start putting together some notes for this, I I noticed a post on Facebook and it was asking questions just right along the lines of what we'll be talking about today. So I went ahead and contacted the poster and got permission to use his post and his questions in the post to kind of kick off our discussion today. And this is going to be the first part of a two-part discussion. So today we're going to be talking about the idea of forgiveness. And then in the next episode, I want to talk about the idea of ways that we can inadvertently pass on the harm or the mistreatment or the undue influence or the coercion that we experienced and learned and was modeled to us through religious experience. And so we'll be talking a little bit about that next time, but I want to start with the perspective of forgiveness first. And so we'll be talking about that today. And the post that I'm going to use to kick off this discussion comes from TG. TG says, what are your thoughts on forgiveness? What place does forgiveness have in your relationship with the church? Is forgiveness of the church even necessary? Should forgiveness apply only to individuals and not organizations? I'm curious to hear your perspective. I watch a lot of clients and myself get stuck and confused on this idea of forgiveness. You know, what is forgiveness really? Is it necessary? Is it possible? When I first stepped back from the church, I was stepping back because I needed a break from the pain I had begun to feel. Church hadn't always felt painful to me, but after sitting in therapy sessions with clients who were being negatively impacted by the things they were hearing at church, um, including my LGBT clients, my single clients, clients working through addictions, you know, anyone who felt like they didn't fit into the box of the Mormon perspective and was feeling pain because of it, I was finding myself feeling pain after I had witnessed enough of these experiences. So I assumed that the church may still be true and I just needed a little bit of space to heal after being a witness to so many people's pain and, you know, beginning to see my own more clearly 
through the lens of what people were sharing. So while there were still some questions on forgiveness for me, at that time I was still confused. I was confused which part of the struggle that I was having belonged to me, which part of it was mine, and which part of it, if any, belonged to the church. So it wasn't until I started learning about the doctrinal and historical discrepancies that I began to feel a deeper anger rise. And as I started to learn new things, I started to feel my world spinning. Now, this may not be how everyone experiences finding out new information, but because I had been so loyal to the idealistic view of the church, coming face-to-face with some of the hidden or darker realities was actually quite painful for me to see. And I remember feeling like I'd been cheated on, and I remember thinking, what do I do with my relationship to the church now? So even though the church itself wasn't an individual, you know, it was an organization and it was composed of many individuals, but it was also composed of a structure of belief systems. It was composed of buildings. It was composed of leadership hierarchy. I mean, it had all of these different facets to it. And so when we think about the question of, you know, is it important for me to forgive an organization? Is that even possible? One of my opinions and senses and biases is that anything that brings up anger in us, resentment, hurt, pain, anything that brings that up in us is something that we can work on forgiveness towards. And that can be a person, an organization, an object. It can be money. It can be a concept. So yes, I would say if anything about the church has felt harmful or caused pain or anger, then that is something that we can forgive. And forgiveness is really important for a couple reasons. One, it helps us to better understand our experience in a way that we're able to integrate the pain and the harm into our own life narrative, into our own life story in a way that's as as real and true as possible to reality. And again, we're all working with our own perspectives and our own reality here, but we can use the processing to get closer and closer to, you know, what was it that really happened to me in this experience? And so we can use it to integrate our experience in a way that can be healing and help us move on. It can also be helpful in terms of our relationships. So this is where organization versus individual might be a little different. Our relationship to an organization is going to be different in the sense that we can't hurt an organization. Now, we can hurt people in the organization, but we can't hurt the organization itself. The organization itself does not have feelings. It's not a human. So in regards to how do I navigate my relationship to the organization, that might be a different experience than how do I navigate my relationship to people in the organization. And so there might be different layers of the forgiveness process going on. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But one thing I have found in my own experience is that as I'm working on a sort of forgiveness with the experience of the organization itself or the experience of the concepts I learned within Mormonism or the framework of belief I had, you know, as I work on my relationship to those things, that is different than my relationship to my family members in the organization, my friends, um, during times I've dated people in the organization, my relationship to them. And sometimes I have confused the lines, and I think it can cause a problem. And so, you know, when I'm angry at the organization or I'm angry at a belief, 
and I then get angry at someone I care about because they're still believing that belief, that's something to look at and start to sort out, you know, what is the process I go through with forgiving the belief itself and what is the process I go through with forgiving this person who's holding a belief that I perceive as harmful to me in some way. What we're going to do is I am going to use the information of a woman named Janice Abrams and I've linked the website um, religioustraumahealing.com to the website and on that website I created it I don't know about a year and a half ago maybe and I only did a few posts but this was one of them and so I'm going to link the post and it's got all the information on there which is kind of nice to have some of the information visually because it's just a lot of information today so I'm going to try to make it audio friendly though a lot of what I'll be going through is in the blog post uh, the year before I became a therapist I attended my first therapy conference and the presenter was a woman named Janice Abrams Springs or Janice Abrams Spring and she was the author of two books on forgiveness one called After the Affair and one called How Can I Forgive You and her work in writing was focused on helping people heal through betrayals and infidelity and I remember I was just blown away in this conference I had very little experience with therapy at that point I had studied business marketing and been in that field for a little bit and so I remember going and sitting and listening to this very kind of heavy information but also really hopeful information and I just got ideas on forgiveness that had never occurred to me and one of the things that intrigued me most was that when I heard Janice present was that, you know I've been taught through my culture that forgiveness was not only healing it was what a good moral person does and therefore on some level I believed it was better to forgive than to be angry or resentful and what I've continued to learn since is that forgiveness is an organic process of response to a variety of factors and efforts so forgiveness is something that starts to rise organically based on certain processes we go through both ourself and then whomever the offender is in a situation and vice versa there are situations where we are the offender and someone else is the hurt party and so forgiveness is a response to a variety of factors and efforts that are made. Um, I've also learned that in order to come to terms with an injury, it is important to follow certain steps that can allow for that to happen. Simply pushing out our doubts and confusion, our anger or rage in order to reconcile is what Janice calls cheap forgiveness. It's not authentic to our genuine needs and it's often not sustainable so even if we use cheap forgiveness to stay reconciled to the organization of the church or to stay reconciled to someone in the church in cheap forgiveness the stuffed emotions will show up in our lives through some destructive channel it might be that we start to get sick or we struggle with other relationships we find ourselves feeling resentful dead numb we find other coping mechanisms to use it impacts our work or our mental or emotional health kind of similar to cognitive dissonance where we're saying something like I shouldn't be so worried about this everyone's just doing their best why can't I just let this go there's nothing I can do about this anyway I might as well just live and let live so any of those phrases that we're using to try to stop feeling the anger when we haven't actually gone through got the information we need from it and integrated it into our life in a way that feels valuable and meaningful I mean until we do that 
we're just moving through this cheap forgiveness process, which is in some way trying to avoid the feelings or avoid conflict with people we love. I think that giving ourselves permission to go through cheap forgiveness is important. And sometimes that's just a part of the grieving process. So in the grieving process, one of the stages that we can go through is the denial stage. And that's often where I find cheap forgiveness comes up. It's where we're in denial about the impact of the experience on us. And we just want to move on with our life and not have it affect us and not have it impact us. Janice Abrams talks about four types of forgiveness. And you can see on the website, like I said, I've put just the basic box so that you can look at these four types of forgiveness and some of their qualities. But in cheap forgiveness, the hurt party does not come to terms with the injury. So in this podcast, the hurt party is going to be the person who felt hurt in some way by the religious experience. And the offender is going to be the organization or someone who's perpetuating the organization's harm in some way. So that's kind of who I'm talking about in this certain podcast. Now there's times that we, as the hurt party, can become the offender. We turn around and we lash out at someone or something in an abusive, manipulative, coercive way. So um, that's what we're going to be talking about in the next series, in the next episode. So in this one, we're looking at the experience where, where the person who is transitioning in belief or religion um, feels as though they've been hurt or manipulated or coerced or deceived in some way. So in cheap forgiveness, the hurt party does not come to terms with the injury. And in cheap forgiveness, the offender does not participate in the healing process. But there is a reconciliation. It's a very shallow and often um, not sustainable or very real reconciliation. There's not very much depth to it, but there's still on some level is that surface reconciliation. Cheap forgiveness, Janice explains it as an unhealthy approach to forgiveness. But it is one way that we try to go through the process of forgiveness. Um, the second type of forgiveness she discusses is also an unhealthy approach. So the first two types of forgiveness she describes are unhealthy approaches to forgiveness, meaning that they can cause our body to still hold stress and there's not a lot of healing or growth that comes out of them. So the second, the second type of forgiveness is refusing to forgive. And in refusing to forgive, the hurt party does not come to terms with the injury, the offender does not participate in the healing process, and there is no reconciliation. So let's go ahead and talk about these first two types, and then we're going to go into the two healthy approaches to forgiveness. So in going back to cheap forgiveness, in cheap forgiveness, the hurt party does not come to terms with the injury and the offender does not participate in the healing process. It does, however, lead to reconciliation. This is considered an unhealthy approach and is often used when someone is afraid of losing the relationship or having to change the relationship. Coming from a background in which it was best to quickly get over anger and in which I didn't learn much about how to process anger, confusion, etc., it is a kind of forgiveness I've personally participated in and in which it's taken some learning and skills to learn a better way. So some examples of cheap forgiveness would be responding to someone sorry by saying, oh, no worries, it's okay, when it really doesn't feel okay. Or I'm fine, or no big deal, I've let it go, when we really haven't let it go. In being faced with information the religion was withholding, or religious deceit, or new science that the religion is not ready to integrate, we may say something like, oh well, everyone is just doing their best. In an attempt to avoid rocking the boat, 
or having to renegotiate our relationship with the church. This would be considered cheap forgiveness. Sometimes coming out the other end of forgiveness could look like cheap forgiveness. We might come to a place where, you know, if we've gone through the process of acceptance, we've come out the other side and we really can live and let live. But that's different once we've gone through the process, we've gone through the stages of grieving, and we've explored the stories underneath the feelings that we're having. If we're still angry, resentful, or numb, or using coping mechanisms to deal with our hurt and pain and frustration, that's a good sign that we haven't finished going through the process, even if we've gone through some of the layers. So some details about cheap forgiveness. It's really as a quick and easy pardon with no processing of emotion. It's premature and superficial, and it's often a compulsive attempt at peacekeeping. So if we're leaning on cheap forgiveness, some of the patterns that we might see in ourselves are that we are compulsively seeking to repair relationships. We may beat up on ourselves when someone mistreats us. We may repress or deny a violation, pretend we feel fine about something when we don't. It might be that we have difficulty knowing and identifying our anger or despair. So you just kind of want to notice if you're scared of your own anger, you know, that might be one of the reasons why cheap forgiveness is something you go to. It might also be that we have a fear of voicing our objections or voicing our needs. Within cheap forgiveness, we often feel powerless. We feel trapped, manipulated, and snuffed out. And again, we can cover a lot of that up with certain coping mechanisms. This is one of the reasons why people leaving religion may be prone to drink a lot or do destructive behaviors. I mean, part of it might be, oh, they're wanting to explore things that they didn't feel like they could explore in the religion. But I find that when we, when we really are moving into a pattern of harm to ourselves, it's often because there are things that aren't processed that we haven't moved through the process of forgiveness on, and we're just stuffing it because we're not really sure what else to do with it. So the disadvantages of cheap forgiveness are that it may preserve the relationship with the offender, in this case the religious organization, or those supporting uh, certain perspectives. But it does quash any opportunity to develop a more intimate bond. It may make the hurt party feel morally superior to the offender. So when we do cheap forgiveness, it's a way for us to feel better than the church organization or better than people in the church organization. Um, But that sanctimonious high that we get, that the hurt party gets, will likely prevent you from being able to get close again. And it may give the transgressor a green light to continue mistreating the hurt party. Cheap forgiveness can also make the hurt party sick, emotionally or physically. So that's some information on cheap forgiveness. Let's move in and just talk a little bit more about refusing to forgive. So in refusing to forgive, the hurt party does not come to terms with the injury, And the religious organization or those supporting it do not participate in the healing process. And often the hurt party does not give them a chance to, even if the offender wants to participate in the healing process. And then there is no reconciliation. So refusing to forgive is also considered an unhealthy approach, especially if we get stuck in it over the long run. So refusing to forgive is a place that I've gone to in my own religious transition when the anger rises and I haven't known where to place it. And it's also been a way that I cope with not always having the skills to speak up about my anger productively and how to assert my needs honestly. You know, when I haven't known how to be appropriately vulnerable, being honest and then letting the offender decide what they want to do about their position, and then from there creating my boundaries and letting reality play out, when I don't know how to do that, sometimes I've gone into this refusing to forgive stance. 
So some details about refusing to forgive. It is a reactive, rigid, and often compulsive response to what we felt like has been a violation to us. And it cuts the hurt party off from life and it leaves us stewing in our own hostile juices. Ooh, anyone ever felt that? Raise your hand. I mean, this again, this is part of the grieving process for most of us. As much as we want to feel better and forgive, there is an anger stage that is quite common. And the reason we call it grieving is because there's a death. We want everyone to see the pain we've been through. We want everyone to hold us and hug us and say, I'm so sorry you went through that. And when that's not really what's happening, you know, it's painful and the anger can come up and refusing to forgive can be a part of that process of our grieving. Again, we can start to stew in our hostile juices and that can be a part of the process, but it really can make us sick. We don't want to stay there in the long run. It blocks us from life. It blocks us from living. It's just hard to move through sometimes. So if we're leaning on refusing to forgive, we may notice these patterns in ourselves. We might find that we're getting insulted and offended overly easily. Perhaps anytime someone brings up something about religion, we jump on it. We might find that we're having too many confrontations. We jump to conclusions and we take what people say or do too personally. Um, It might be that we're reacting with arrogance or indignation, pride. I just feel like I remember so much of this, and it still pops up some days for me. Um, We cut ourselves off from those who hurt us without wrestling with the truth about what actually happened. We find that an apology is never good enough to warrant letting go of the offense. In regards to the organization, the organization of the religion may not have ever done the apology and actually made the changes that make that apology last. So again, some of this won't apply to the organization itself, though it might apply to certain people in the organization. It might be that we take comfort in the role of victim, and we fail to see that an injury wasn't simply something done to us, but something we may also have had some responsibility in. So this is so true with the anger, is we often are putting all of the responsibility on the organization, the religion, or the person who is supporting it, and we're not seeing what our part has been. We might dream of ways to crush our opponent. We might dream of ways to crush the religion and its supporters in this case. And we fill our time with retaliatory fantasies that make us feel superior, powerful, and in control. These are all some of the qualities we might see in ourselves when we're going through this refusing to forgive experience. The disadvantages of refusing to forgive are that not forgiving cuts us off from any dialogue with the offender with the organization of the church itself or its supporters, and it cuts us off from any positive resolution of the conflict. It may restore the hurt party's pride, but it cuts us off from opportunities for personal growth and understanding. So even if it's not possible to have dialogue with the offender, refusing to forgive does cut us off from our opportunities for personal growth and understanding. And it may make us feel less empty temporarily, but it does poison us and cut us off from life. Because again, when we're stewing in that hostility, we're taking all that energy that we could use towards rebuilding and creating something beautiful, and we're just using it to feed our fantasies. So those are the two types of forgiveness that Janice Abrams describes as being unhealthy approaches. And again, what I would say is that they are not uncommon approaches to forgiveness. And if we're in either of those approaches, just to notice it and be really compassionate to ourselves. So sometimes I've even labeled it 
I'll watch myself doing cheap forgiveness and I'll say that. Like, oh, that's me cheap forgiving right there. I'm too afraid to talk about the real issue still. So again, we can give ourselves lots of compassion if one of these approaches is where we are. But it's also helpful to know that we don't have to stay in these approaches forever and there are other options. So the next two types of forgiveness that Janice talks about are acceptance. And acceptance is a healthy type of forgiveness as she describes it. And in acceptance, the hurt party does come to terms with the injury, but the offender does not participate in the healing process. And it may or may not lead to reconciliation. The last type of forgiveness that she describes is called genuine forgiveness, which is also a healthy type of forgiveness. And in genuine forgiveness, the hurt party does come to terms with the injury and the offender participates in the healing process. It may or may not lead to reconciliation. It often does, but not always. So let's go over these two types of forgiveness and some of the steps of these types of forgiveness. And it might give you some ideas for kind of where to go right now in regards to your relationship with the organization of the religion or your relationship with the beliefs or your relationship with people in it. So in acceptance, the hurt party comes to terms with the injury But the offender, the religious organization, or its supporters possibly, do not participate in the healing process. There may or may not be reconciliation. This is considered a healthy approach to forgiveness in that it literally keeps us more emotionally and physically healthy than the previous two options. And it's the only option that's available if the offender is unwilling or unable to effectively participate in the healing process. So I've found that while the religious organization that I came from, which is Mormonism, which is probably what most of the listeners here came from, but maybe not all of you. So I found that while Mormonism has made some efforts to participate in owning up to their part of certain hidden information and things like that, they haven't been able to participate at the level that I've needed, as described in Janice Spring's work for Genuine Forgiveness, And so this is the approach that I myself personally have most often utilized when I am not feeling stuck in cheap forgiveness or refusing to forgive. So sometimes the little efforts can feel confusing because we think, well, at least it's something, right? But then as I go through the requirements needed for more genuine forgiveness, it sometimes is a reminder that it may, the efforts may or may not be enough. And again, sometimes only we can decide that based on what the harm has been to us and our experience and in our perspectives. So I am kind of letting you know my own personal bias there, that this has been the process I've found myself going through with the organization and many of the supporters. Though I have found people who are still in Mormonism who I've been able to go through a more genuine forgiveness process with in regards to our relationship with each other around the church. So it kind of depends on how open people are. So some details about acceptance. Acceptance is a responsible and authentic response to an interpersonal injury when the offender can't or won't engage in the healing process, either because they're unwilling, they don't know how, or they've died. So when I'm doing my own work with my feelings on Joseph Smith, who is now dead, this is the process I go through. He's not here to go through a process of genuine forgiveness with me personally. I was actually reading something. I was going through some old boxes in my basement a few weeks ago, cleaning things out, and I found my box of old journals, and I found one from junior high and just opened it up. And so many of the entries 
were about how much I loved the church, and I was I wrote an entry on my talk I was getting ready to do in church on Joseph Smith and how much I love Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. And it was just really interesting to notice how much love I had built for them in my worldview at that time. So yeah, you know, it made more sense as to why as I've gone through the process I've gone through, I have had to do some of this work even with people who are dead. So acceptance is a program of self-care. It's really a generous and healing gift to oneself. It's accomplished by the self, for the self, and it asks nothing of the offender. So the good news is you can go through a healthy experience of forgiveness, even if the offender won't participate at all. So Janice Abram Springs describes 10 steps of acceptance, and I'm going to go through the steps and describe examples of what this might look like as you're working through the process in regards to managing your relationship with Mormonism or any other religious organization. And while I'm going to number these steps from 1 to 10, the order is somewhat flexible. And you might move back and forth between these steps. So the first step of acceptance is to honor the full sweep of our emotions. And this means that for as long as you live, you honor any sadness, anger, confusion, frustration that may at any point be stirred up by a memory or a reflection on the experience. This means that during the acute healing or during the later stages of healing, you can make space for what you feel. This is where we start to really practice labeling, oh, I'm feeling anger right now. I'm feeling sadness. I'm feeling guilt. I'm feeling fear. I'm feeling regret. And it's really important to label it and name it and feel it, even if you've been out five years or ten years. And for most people, if they are going through the process, the pain will start to lessen. And not only that, but certain experiences will really heal and they'll really integrate. And so you won't have the same triggers coming up over and over. But things that aren't getting fully processed will often get triggered back up some way and come back. So it is important anytime we experience something to honor that feeling. And again, it doesn't always mean that all the stories underneath the feeling are true. We've talked about that in the past. But it does mean letting ourselves be present with the feeling that we have so that we can integrate it more. We can explore more of the story underneath get closer to reality, and move on. So getting a therapist or coach for how to process these emotions can be really beneficial for this step. Um, I sometimes feel like I've come to a place of acceptance and then something happens that brings it all up again. And so, again, just being really patient with yourself. And if any of the following steps that I give bring up frustration, anger, guilt, etc., come back to this first step. It's often not given enough attention Because the last thing we want to do do is feel confusion or feel uncertainty or feel fear. It's like, let me just move on. Let me be angry at the church, blame them, and move on. But it really doesn't work in the long run. Those feelings might even come through a whole different story in our life. I mean, it might be we just say we're going to move on from religion. We move on, and then we're finding ourselves in relationships that are bringing up similar feelings. Or in our parenting In your parenting, you're having similar feelings. So, yeah, this this step is one that's often skipped over because we just don't want to feel certain things. The second step is to give up our need for revenge, but continue to seek a just resolution. So if there are things that need continued dialogue, legal attention, or require you to open your mouth and share the truth of your side of the story, that is an important part of the process. 
And sometimes I felt a need to continue to protect Mormonism. Other times I've wanted to throw it under the bus. So I've definitely swung both ways. Um, but there have been times I've wanted to protect Mormonism or those who lovingly or benevolently believe it. And while it's important to not manipulate people into our ways of seeing things, it may be important to simply explain that there is a reason for your feelings. And if those you care about are interested in understanding your reasoning, there are resources or you're willing to talk about your feelings and what you're going through. Sometimes a just resolution may never come. Sometimes it may take years. And even if a just resolution doesn't come, continue to make, continuing to make space for it at a level that feels sustainable over time can be a part of what keeps us moving forward. And I have found that this is really important. If we just shut that all down, it can actually lead to some depression. Because a part of us deep inside knows I might have to spend my whole life on some level standing up for and representing the pain of this experience. And again, we don't have to stay stuck in it. It doesn't mean we can't move on and rebuild and find a beautiful life. But in some way to either help those who are coming behind us who are going through the experience, in some way to kind of honor and seek a just resolution for change in the world around this. And, you know, there are so many religions right now that are going through these changes. Mormonism's just one. And there are a lot of people in a lot of orthodox or more fundamental religions who are experiencing a lot of pain. And even if you're not doing anything actively, just sending out compassion for those who are going through this. Anytime you feel sadness, then maybe you move on that day until you feel it again and you send out more compassion. Another option is to have discussions with family members or loved ones. And that was something I personally chose to do. And I do that intermittently. It might only be once a year, twice a year, once every other year. But I keep it open. So I get a lot of clients who will say to me, well, I just, I just need to realize my family's never going to change. And I have to remind them, they may never change, but they may. We don't know what the future holds, and we don't know what the future holds for them. All you can do is stay open. And that's a hard thing to do when we want certainty in our lives. But all we can do is stay open and protect ourselves in the present. And if they change, then we can decide what we want to do with that. And if it feels helpful to open up discussion again at some point, you know, we do that. So it's knowing there's a lot of flow and movement to this. Okay, the third step is to stop obsessing about the injury and to re-engage with life. This does not mean forgetting steps one and two. While obsession may be a phase in the grief process, we can get stuck here longer than necessary. Obsessing does not fix things. And actually, I want to say something about, you know, we can get stuck here longer than necessary, but I would also be really gentle with yourself. Not to push yourself out of obsession with guilt or obligation, because I think we can do that with ourselves, like, gosh, what's wrong with me? I should stop obsessing about this. Mm, yeah, maybe. And maybe we can say, wow, wow, instead of continuing to go through this Facebook group right now, I'm going to just turn this off and I'm going to do something else. But also, obsessing can be a sign that we're not feeling our emotions. So it could be that we need to go back to step one. And sometimes obsession helps us to realize, gosh, I haven't, I haven't done step one and two enough. Or something's coming back up and I need to go back and do those steps again. So be really gentle with yourself, even if you're obsessing more than you wish you were. Um, obsessing does not fix things. And in fact, it can be draining in a way that affects your ability to really heal, seek a just resolution, and help others. 
When you're feeling stuck in your efforts to change the organization or others who support it, go out and find another life. So it doesn't mean you can't continue coming back to work on this religious transition stuff, but if it's always the main thing on your mind and it's taking away from enjoying hobbies, productive work, and developing meaningful relationships, it may be helpful to take a break and then come back to dealing with what needs to be dealt with when you feel more cool-headed. So one of the things I've done when I've noticed myself going through obsessive phases, at one point I did what was called, a, I called it a mind fast. And I just decided for two days, for 48 hours, anytime obsession came up about the church stuff, I was going to say, oh, I'll come back to that in 48 hours. Come back to that in 48 hours. And I would just set it aside. And I sometimes had to do that multiple times an hour. And it started to kind of release a little bit. And I felt more able to move on with life again. Because I found that there was a week or two weeks where I was just getting wrapped back up into things. So again, that's not a bad thing. But sometimes taking the mind fast can be helpful. And then we come back to it with a more clear, cool head. So sometimes we want to problem solve so badly, and that's not bad. But sometimes our subconscious needs a little bit of time. We present it with our sadness, our fear, our anger, and it's like, okay, I'm going to go to work on that, but we're like consciously trying to figure it out before the subconscious has had enough time to work with it. So that's why it also is helpful to label our emotions, know we're going to continue to seek a just resolution, and then move forward. Give ourselves space so that the subconscious can do its work and ideas can start to pop up down the road. So according to Spring, some strategies for limiting obsessive thinking are to challenge our negative thoughts, question our habitual response to the injury, learn thought-stopping, seek social support, implement a problem, program of self-care, focus our energy on the desired outcome in regards to where we have personal power, use relaxation, visual, visualization, and meditation. Maybe one day we can talk more about those specifically. Okay, so moving on to step four. Step four, oh, this one's important. Step four is it's really important to protect ourselves from further abuse. This, again, is going to show my experience. It's not everyone's experience, nor is it what everyone needs. But this was actually a big determinant in my choice to no longer be a member of the Mormon church. So as I sat in my last church meeting a few years back, I felt a surge of anger towards a perspective that is frequently emphasized. Um, and I don't remember what was being talked about, but something that felt somewhat shaming and hurtful and manipulative. And I've told this story before on, on my personal podcast, and so you may have heard it. But I remember in that moment, I just was so hurt and angry, and it had been a few years of just feeling this way. And I thought, why can't they, the church, why can't they take better care of my spirituality? And then a question arose in my mind, Jenny, why can't you better care for your spirituality. If this place feels spiritually harmful, then why can't you leave? And after a lifetime within that faith tradition, that was the moment I actually knew I would probably not be back, at least never in the same capacity as a member myself. So we may wonder why people continue to hurt us, and yet we may realize that we've never been willing to take a risk and make the changes that we need to do to take to be safe from harm right we put all the responsibility on everyone else why don't you take care of me why don't you take care of me it's like why why don't I dare to take care of me so this is a really important piece is for us to really go through the process of acceptance and heal it is important to protect ourselves from further abuse now this may not mean that we can't stay in the religion 
since leaving Mormonism, I have been in relationships with people who are Mormon. And I've also worked with couples where one person is religious or Mormon and the other is not, um, or the other is leaving. And so I've really, really had to think about this. And I've had to think about, is it possible to both protect ourselves from further abuse if we have experienced Mormonism as abusive on any level or manipulative or coercive or harmful? Is it possible to protect ourselves from that further and also on some level to stay connected to people in the organization or even to have some some level of reconciliation with the organization itself? And again, in Janice's model, even in acceptance, there can be reconciliation so long as we're protecting ourselves from further abuse. So, for example, if you are a part of a mixed-faith marriage and you want to be in church on Sunday to sit with your spouse in sacrament meeting, what are some ways that you can both do that and protect yourself from further harm if that's what you've felt or experienced? And, you know, this is where we get to start being creative and come up with maybe some creative, untraditional ideas, whether that's if something's said that feels harmful for me, then I know I have permission to um, you know, squeeze my spouse's hand or give them a kiss on the cheek and quietly get up and spend the rest of the time in the foyer or outside in the yard. And you know, another example would be that we no longer see authority figures as our authority figures in the same way. <clears throat> so you may be choosing to stay connected to the organization in some way, but you also know that you're no longer under the coercion or undue influence of any authority, leader, or figure. So, you know, those are just some different things to explore. But anytime we're angry and we're wishing people would change or do something different, that's often good information that there's something that we need to stand up for for ourselves a little bit more. So I think for a lot of us, um, you know, for some people, they swing to one end of the spectrum, and they again, they do that refusing to forgive or that cutting off. Other people do the cheap forgiveness. It's fine. I'm fine. I can be here. It's no big deal. <laughs> but they're still feeling the harm and the resentment is still building. So the only way that you're going to know what's going to work for you is to pay attention to your feelings and not ignore, not ignore them. And then get creative and it might help to have someone go through and hash it out with you a little bit so you can brainstorm some of this stuff. Okay, the fifth step is to frame the offenders, the religion... Um, or supporters' behavior in terms of their own personal struggles. So this doesn't mean that we allow the organization or any of the people who support the organization to continue, continue to hurt us, at least where we have any personal power to manage that. This doesn't mean that we're giving them excuses or justifications or saying, oh well, it can never change. What we are doing is getting really honest about how life works. We're simply seeing it for what it is, if a person or organization is acting in a manipulative or abusive way, it is usually because that's how they were taught to navigate life. So you may notice areas of your own life where you can be manipulative and coercive, maybe even a little bit abusive or very abusive. Have you ever beat yourself up in your own mind? Oh, I'm such an idiot. You know, if so, you know what it's like to believe that being abusive is the way to fix things, make things safe or get what you want out of life. If you beat yourself up in your own mind on some level, you believe that manipulation is the way to go. And I'm not saying that so that we shame ourselves. It's just an awareness that life is life. And when we've been taught a certain way, we might still be going on with that modeling. And no wonder people are doing that to themselves and 
even to us. While this step is not to encourage us to let anything off the hook that needs to be resolved, it is to get more clear about reality so that we don't waste energy in staying angry where we don't need to stay angry. Um, even though the experience impacted us on a personal level, it's usually not as personal as we feel like it is. And that's a sucky thing to hear and to realize. And that's often one of the things that moves us from, from anger into depression in the grieving stages is that realization that like, gosh, this feels personal. It feels like this person wants to hurt me and wants to make me suffer. And it feels like this organization wants me to suffer. And in a way they do because it keeps their pattern alive. But it's not that personal in that they're, they're, just, they're just in the trance state of that model still. And they're just following it without a lot of awareness. And we do the same thing in our own ways often. So again, next week we're going to talk a lot about how we sometimes still take these patterns that we've learned and we continue to perpetuate them. Okay, Stage, or step six is to look honestly at our own contribution to the injury. And this one can feel really scary and sensitive. And when we're angry, it can feel offensive to suggest that we had anything to do with this. So a couple of things I want to delineate here. To see our contribution to what happened does not mean that someone else's thoughts, choices, or actions were our fault. What it does mean is that we may have contributed to our experience of the injury in an unconscious way. And once we identify that, it can actually feel relieving because it's the sweet spot where we get to regain our personal power going forward. So here are some examples of what clients have noticed about their unconscious contributions. So for example, I bought into the whole story, including the parts that made me feel uncomfortable because dot, dot, dot. One, I didn't yet dare to trust my own inner voice. Two, it felt more important to be seen as the good boy or the good girl than to question things when I felt unsettled. Another way we might have contributed to our own injury, I didn't know how to build a picture of what else was possible. We shut down our imagination. Um, it felt nice to have someone give us all the answers. So we actually gave up our critical thinking for that comfort. We liked believing that we were safe from the hurt and pain of the world. It might have been that we were scared to be treated like an outsider or a rebel. Maybe we liked believing that we were special or chosen, especially if we were struggling with our own self-confidence. And it might have been that it was just easier to just believe than to do the research for ourselves. So there are different ways that we contribute sometimes to our own experience of the injury. And these aren't things we need to shame about ourselves. We can go through the process of poet with them to kind of make sense of why we did what we did and how we contributed to our own injury so that down in the future we don't play that pattern out again. But, you know, just like in step five, we can frame our own behavior in terms of our own personal struggles. But it is hugely helpful to see where we contributed to our own injury. And it is part of the process of acceptance. If we're not willing to look at it, then the patterns will play out again and we won't get the same resolution that we're looking for. Step eight of acceptance. Look at the offender, the religion, and or its supporters, apart from their offense, weighing the good against the bad. Now doing this doesn't mean we have to reconcile, but what it does do is it helps us to stay more clearly in reality. If we look at anything in life, nothing is all good or all bad. No relationship is perfect. No city of residence is without its disadvantages. No person has a flawless character. Acknowledging the good doesn't mean ignoring the bad. 
Rather, acknowledging the good can help us determine what we want to take with us, even if the cost of having a relationship with the religion ultimately outweighs the gain or the positive. So again, in acceptance, we may not reconcile um, at a very high level or at all, but being able to weigh the good against the bad, sort out what we want to take with us, being able to see reality more clearly really can be a part of the process of moving on and growing up in ourselves. Um, so step nine is carefully decide what kind of relationship you want with the offender, the religion, and those who support the religion. Now again, it might be important to not put everything into one big lump. So what kind of a relationship with you want you want with the organization might be different than what kind of relationship you want with your friends or your parents or your spouse or your children that are still supporters of the religion or still participating in it. Step eight might be somewhat helpful in determining what kind of relationship you want, kind of by looking at the good and the bad and looking at what, what outweighs what. And this is very personal for us. But the key here is giving ourselves permission to decide what we want. If you want to stay, give yourself permission to stay. Just be aware of your choice. If you want to leave, give yourself, give yourself permission to leave. Just be aware of your choice. And maybe the choice you make today is not going to be the choice you make six months from now or five years from now or ten years from now. So, you know, check in with yourself over time. Are the reasons you decided to stay or leave holding up over time? If so, great. Just continue to check in from time to time. Are the reasons not holding up? If so, great. At least now you have more information and you can adjust as needed. Or a new condition has arisen that you're weighing in. So make the best decisions you can day to day and stay open to new information. And then step one is to forgive yourself for your own failings. So are there areas where you've made mistakes, where you unconsciously gave away your power? If so, practice a lot of self-compassion. Learn from the mistakes and move on. So I found I've needed to forgive myself both for things I did within the religious context, as well as how I've sometimes handled the anger and grief upon leaving. So throughout the process of acceptance is a lot of forgiving ourselves as we start to see the whole picture of reality more clearly. Okay, so I hope you're still with me. This has been kind of a, uh, this has been a long episode with a lot of information. But I do hope you're still with me. We've got one more type of forgiveness to go through. And this one won't take as long as acceptance. But this one is really helpful because, again, it can help us to sort out when is this genuine forgiveness process possible. And so the fourth type of forgiveness is genuine forgiveness. Janice Springs uses this term to describe an experience of forgiveness in which both the hurt party comes to terms with the injury and the offender participates in the healing process. It is a more complete conflict, conflict resolution than acceptance, but it does take the willingness of both sides. So one thing I have found with acceptance is that we can use it to move on with our lives and to still build a wonderful, happy life. But with acceptance, there's often this sort of thing that's always there. It's kind of like a death. It's like it's, like it's never all the way gone. And I, I really think that's okay because that happens in life. Death happens. And something is sometimes gone that can never be regained in the same way. And it always sort of leaves a little bit of a hole or a void, okay? And again, this isn't everyone's experience, but depending on how you experience the church and how you experience your transition from it or harm from it, you know, I mean, 
there are so many factors that go into this, but it can be a little bit of a death that never is really fully complete. Where genuine forgiveness is a very cool experience because it actually can complete the healing process and can actually take us and expand us into greater depths, greater intimacy, more connection. And it just is really awesome when it can happen. Um, But it does take the willingness of both sides and you can only do your side. If the other party is not wanting to participate, there's there's nothing you can do about that. Um, You can try to coerce or manipulate or convince, but then we're just perpetuating all that stuff that we wish hadn't happened to us. So in genuine forgiveness, there may or may not be reconciliation, but it is seen as a healthy approach to forgiveness either way. As both parties experience greater awareness and healing through the process. So Janice uses some different areas of exploration to determine if the requirements for this two-sided dance are truly being met. In genuine forgiveness, the hurt party will still be responsible for going through the 10 steps of acceptance. Only they'll do it in the presence of and with the assistance of the offender. So you will still go through those 10 steps of acceptance. And sometimes it takes a third party to go through some of this. So my, my sense is because religious organizations are not usually willing to step up and to do the genuine forgiveness piece from their side, at least at the level that Janice Springs talks about it, my guess is you probably won't be doing this with the organization, though you may, and who, you know, depending on who's listening and what your experience has been, you may. But you know, it might be a process you can go through with people in the organization or with loved ones who are still supporting and participating. So what offenders must do to earn forgiveness in this situation? One would be to work to truly understand the pain that they've caused and bear witness to the pain that they've caused. I ran into a good friend who is still LDS, still active Mormon, and when I told her I had left the church, I I ran into her when I was out of town recently. She's not living in Utah. And when I told her I'd left the church, she looked at me and she said, wow, that must have been so hard for you to follow what you knew you needed to do for yourself. And it was like right then she was able to bear witness of my pain and she was not perpetuating coercion on me. And so it was like this really beautiful moment of feeling some genuine forgiveness with the church through her, right? Even though the organization's not doing that, it was really powerful to feel that from someone in the organization. So again, you know, knowing this is a process that can sometimes happen with people who are still participating. Um, and other, other things that the offenders can do to earn forgiveness. And again, I'm saying offender and the people who are in this, in this situation aren't necessarily consciously offending or being unkind. But again, on some level, we're experiencing them as an, as an offender because they're still participating in or believing or supporting an organization that we feel caused us harm. So as I'm using the word offender here, I'm not necessarily using it as a degrading term or even as someone who's consciously harming us. Okay, so moving on, what else offenders can do to earn forgiveness? Um, Look at their mistaken assumptions about forgiveness and see how those assumptions block their efforts to earn it. And so a mistaken assumption about forgiveness might be Um, all I need to do is say, oh, I'm sorry, mistakes were made. Okay, so some of us heard that in conference talk a little while back. And even though it was an effort on some level, 
in the in forgiveness work and in forgiveness research for genuine forgiveness to happen those mistakes need to be laid out specifically that's a very important part of the process so if there are mistakes mistaken assumptions about forgiveness that can block their efforts to earn it it's important for the offender to apologize genuinely non-defensively and responsibly and we'll talk more about an effective apology in just a moment it's important for an offender to seek to understand their harmful behavior and reveal the truth about themselves to the persons that they harmed. So sometimes the offender, once they realize ways that they are hurting you, they are, you know, if they're able to understand that and then to be able to say, wow, I can see, you know, that this and this and this hurts you in this way. Another thing an offender must do to earn forgiveness is work to earn back trust, including making reparations making changes. If changes aren't being made and continued abuse is happening, continued manipulation, coercion, undue influence, their trust cannot be earned back and there can be no genuine forgiveness. You can go into acceptance, but again, that's different. Um, The other thing that offenders must be able to do is forgive themselves for injuring another person. It's part of what helps us all to move on and change. So requirements for an effective apology In order to make an effective apology, offenders must truly hear and understand the hurt party. They must take responsibility for the damage that they've caused, including making reparations, engaging in compensation where necessary, etc., and where that's even possible. Um, It's important that they make their apology personal. It's important that they make their apology specific. It's important that they make their apology deep, that there's a real awareness there. Um, They must be able to honestly offer a heartfelt apology. If they can't honestly do that, again, it's not genuine forgiveness. Making their apology clean. So while there can be an explanation of the context, there's not justifications or excuses or continuing of the harm in any way. For an effective apology, the offender must sometimes apologize repeatedly. This doesn't mean obsessively or that that they have to meet obsessive demands from the hurt party, but that they are aware that the grieving will happen in layers over time and they are willing and able to continue to offer apologies when a new layer comes up and is being worked through. So, and there's one other thought popping up here. And, you know, we might be asked to participate in a healing process, or we might ask someone to participate in a healing process, and we want to move through genuine forgiveness. Only there can be sometimes, again, confusion on, on the harm itself. So, for example, we might be in a relationship where we are asking for someone to apologize for something that they actually didn't really do. And this is important, again, when we're working with people who are participating in or supporting a religion. When you're working on forgiveness processes with them, and if they're willing to engage in a forgiveness process on some level, it's important to remember that they aren't the ones who hid the information or that they aren't the ones who started up this religion. Or they aren't the ones who were doing harm in this way or that way. Okay, So if we're working with someone specific, it's really important that we're working on forgiveness with their part of it and our part of it. And that might be different than how we work on it with the organization itself. So that I'm not giving any specifics there, but hopefully that's enough information on that. So when religious organizations and supporters expect a once believer to just move on after leaving religion, it's a good sign that those supporters do not understand the impact of the trauma, nor do they know how to engage in a process of forgiveness with the hurt party. 
So moving through acceptance or genuine forgiveness are both healthy approaches and they take time and it is a process and it may require some assistance for certain parts of the process. So when you hear the phrase, um, people who leave Mormonism just can't leave it alone, that's the uh, organization's way of encouraging cheap forgiveness. Just move on, just move on. Fine, if you don't want to be here, fine, just move on. There's not the awareness that, oh, there's been harm here, there's been hurt here. Let's go through this process together and let's look at which parts really belong to who and see if we can sort it out. And this can take time. And, you know, again, we might spend our whole life open and willing to work on the process if it, if it ever becomes available. But knowing we may also be able to do nothing more than acceptance, just doing our part. So be gentle with yourself. And as you go through the stages of grieving and the steps of acceptance or possibly genuine forgiveness where possible, you know, the pain and anger may rise up again and again or periodically in response to certain life experiences. And each time you can walk yourself through the different steps of acceptance. You can take action where necessary and engage in the conversations that are needed. You know, you can move it through poet over and over. We didn't talk about poet in this episode, so go back if you haven't listened to the previous episodes. Um, and just know that you can continue to adjust and redefine your relationship to the religious organization and its supporters and those you love who are still participating. You can adjust and redefine as you go through your own healing, gain new information, or simply experience life differently. You do not have to have everything figured out at once. And just knowing that I'm willing to be in my life and I'm willing to go through this process, you know, sometimes that's enough. And I've used the phrase before, I'm willing to be in my life. You know, when I'm angry and mad and depressed and I can't fix it and I don't know how to get the other person who's involved in the experience to see it or change, I've sometimes just said to myself, I feel sad, I feel angry, I feel depressed. You know, letting yourself say that if that's your experience. And then being able to say, and I'm willing to be in my life. I'm willing to be here and I'm willing to go through this process of grieving, maybe reconciling, maybe not. So happy, healthy healing to all. I hope this episode has been helpful. Come back for the next episode to learn a little bit more about how to not carry on the patterns that were modeled to you. I will look forward to connecting with you then. 